Before I pray, let me thank you for being so kind to pray for me while I was away. It was a productive time. I'll, I'll write some details down in a Star article for you. But God was good, and I am really glad to be back. Um, I went to church every weekend and heard preaching. And when I hear good preaching, it makes me say, I'd really like to do that. And when I hear bad preaching, it makes me say, we've got to do better than that. And so whether it's good or whether it's bad, and there was a lot of good preaching that helped my soul, it made me want to be back. We are entering on the most sacred week of the year. In this week, the most important events that have ever happened in history happened. Christmas is less important than Good Friday and Easter because Christmas is preparation for Good Friday and Easter. The world will give you no help this time with carols and decorations and gifts. It will be between you and God whether you feel anything special this week. We as a church will make some efforts to help you on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter. So I simply uh, ask that as a Christian, you would consider the seriousness of once a year marking in some special way the extraordinary events that we celebrate in Holy Week. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you are so kind to us as a church. And I thank you. Your mercy is great and your patience with us is extraordinary. And we are humbly dependent and happily so on you. So now come as we go into this passage of Scripture to try to launch us into Holy Week. Would you draw near and reveal Christ to us? We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. O oh God, grant that we would behold that glory and receive that grace. Now, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at John 3. And... Picking up where we left off in our trek through the Gospel of John, I have chosen not to leave John, but to jump ahead a few verses. We ended at the end of chapter 2, and here we are now picking it up at chapter 3, but I'm going to jump ahead because verses 14 and 15 are so well designed for preparation for Holy Week. So that's going to be our focus in this message, verses 14 and 15. But we need to walk toward it, and then in the coming weeks we'll circle back and do more on Nicodemus. But I want us to deal with these two verses because it's Holy Week. So let's get the flow of the thought in our minds. If you have your Bible, 
and they're open to John 3. Let's walk from verse 1 to verse 13 and then begin some detail. Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of night. He's a leader and evidently concerned about his reputation. And he says, we know you're a teacher sent from God. You couldn't do these things if you weren't. Jesus very abruptly changes the subject, it seems, and says, unless a man is born again, he'll never see the kingdom. Nicodemus is is struck. He doesn't know what that means. He, He says, can you what? Enter again a second time into your mother's womb and be born. And then verses five to eight, Jesus says, I'm talking about a kind of birth that is by water and the spirit. It involves a cleansing. It involves new life. It's done by the spirit. It is totally free. It's like wind blowing. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everybody that's born of the spirit. He's baffled. And Jesus says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? As though if you had read Deuteronomy 30 or you had read Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 11, you'd understand that a person must be born by the Spirit, must be born from above. A natural man produces natural men. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit has a living spirit, can comprehend things I'm saying. You don't get this, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus simply says, verse 9, how can these things be? Now, verse 12 Or uh, 11. Your, your problem, Nicodemus, is that you don't receive valid and true testimony. We're speaking what we know, the we, I think, being Jesus and others who will take up this truth, and you don't receive it. You don't receive it. That word receive, call to mind anything? Chapter 1, verse 12. He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to as many as received him, he gave the power to become the children of God to those who believed in his name. And and Nicodemus isn't in that number. He's hearing a testimony And he's not receiving it. That's what Jesus is saying is the problem here with with Nicodemus. Then verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. Now it's belief, just like it was in 112. To as many as received him who believed in his name. Here it starts off. You're not receiving the testimony. And now verse 12, you're not believing If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You keep keep asking me, how can this be? You keep experimenting with your conceptual reenactments of this new birth. You want me to tell you more. Go deeper. Go higher. I can't go any higher. I can't get anywhere with you in that way. You're not born again. You won't see it. You can't see the kingdom 
until you're born again. So you, you're, you can ask, but I, I, have, I have told you things. You don't get them. I'm, I can't go any higher with you. You can't go any higher. You don't have any wings yet. Now, so much for the setting. What's amazing, helpful, wonderful to me about what follows is that Jesus didn't give up on Nicodemus. Verse 13 is a very strange, a very pivotal verse. And it's a shift. A shift happens. It's pivotal. He might have said... Okay, Nicodemus, you're not born again. You're blind. You're dead. You can't handle spiritual truth. I've, I've told you things. You don't know what I'm talking about. You turn them into silly, go into your mother's womb kind of talk. I'm done. I mean, when you get born again, come back. We'll talk some more. Then might, you might understand. Now, this is really practical. You've got people in your life you love. You might look at one in the mirror who not born again, and you feel totally helpless how to make it happen. You've tried to explain it, and it's just going in one ear and out the other. It's not making any sense to them at all. It moves them not at all. They, they'll listen for a little bit, then they go off, and I mean, they are spiritually dead. They're blind, and you love them, and you feel desperately helpless for them. What do you do next? Come back when you're born again. It might come to that. But it didn't yet for Jesus and Nicodemus. So I'm very eager to know, okay, if he's not responding to the imagery of new birth, as you've tried to press it on him, what are you going to say next? And verse 13 is the shift to the new thing. So watch what happens and see if this might help you, maybe for yourself maybe for the person that you care so deeply to see born again. Before verse 13, Jesus is a witness. He's a teacher. He hasn't said anything about himself. You could say what he says before verse 13. You've got to be born again, Nicodemus. I could say that. You could say that. You say I'm a teacher, come from God. I'm telling you be born again. I'm a good teacher. I'm a witness. You're not receiving my testimony. Now, with verse 13, he shifts from being a witness to being the Son of Man. He's not any longer going to talk about what needs to happen in Nicodemus like I might do. He's going to talk about what he's going to do that makes the new birth possible. Jesus is shifting from, this needs to happen in you. He's shifting from describing the process. It's by the Spirit. It's like water. It's like wind blowing. Uh, it's like another birth. It brings life. He's describing a process. And then after verse 13, he's describing the action of the Son of Man in history. That's very significant.
There are more obstacles to the new birth than the deadness of the human heart. And they must be dealt with in history by the Son of God before the Holy Spirit can deal with the deadness in the human heart. So Jesus is going to talk to him about this. Because the way the Holy Spirit works to cause the heart to be born again is by directing the attention of the mind to consider the external work that God did in history. The Holy Spirit is given to glorify Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Okay, so that's where we're going. The shift happens at verse 13. Here's what it says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, that just seems to come out of nowhere in one sense. It just strikes you as so, whoa, why did you say that? The link with verse 12 is heaven and heavenly. If I spoke to you earthly things and you don't believe, how can I speak of heavenly things? Nobody went up into heaven and then came down except me, the Son of Man. Now, I, th- I think that first phrase simply means there is no human being who has ever gone into heaven to be prepared to do what I'm about to do. I'm the only one. I have come down from heaven. The Son of Man is going to come down, has come down from heaven. So I'm equipped to teach you heavenly things big time, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm shifting gears here. You don't need any more heavenly teaching. You need a Savior. You need to see something being done for you outside of you. You need to stop thinking about all this stuff that needs to happen in here. And you need to go out. And I'm going to tell you about what I'm doing for you. You watch. That's what's going on here. Verses 14 and 15. Let's read them. Now, before I read it, this is really striking, shocking. Nicodemus knows his Bible. He, he, he knows this story. Jesus is going to allude to here about the serpent on the pole. He knows this story. So he's picking something that a Jewish teacher would understand, would, would remember. But it's a risky story because he's going to compare himself to a snake. You might think he would skip that one. There's lots of places to go in the Old Testament then the Messiah would compare himself to a snake. Okay, so when you read this, you just kind of, hmm. You sure you want to go there? You want to use that story? So let's, let's read the verses and then we'll read the story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now you can imagine, he's, he's sitting talking to Nicodemus, and this is just coming out of the blue. I mean, just... Nicodemus didn't ask him to go there. He didn't ask him to talk about the Son of Man. He didn't ask him to tell a story from the Old Testament. He didn't ask him to talk about these things. This is, 
Jesus Christ taking charge of this conversation in a way that just might break through. I think it did break through. Nicodemus shows up later. Seems to be pretty, pretty sold out. Taking some big risks at the end of the, of the book. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so as Moses lifted up the snake, the Son of Man's going to be lifted up. So I'm going to be the snake. Now let's go to Numbers chapter 21. If you want to follow, you can just listen if you want to. If you'd like to, to see this, it's a very short story, it's self contained. It's shocking, even there, but it will help you if you have this story in mind, I think, to see what Jesus wants to say. This, is, this comparison with this snake on a pole is so rich with good news for Nicodemus and us that I want you to see as much of it as you can. So here we are at Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Verse 4, chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they sent, set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's manna. That's God's precious life-sustaining gift. It's like somebody would come up on Monday, Thursday, and just rake the trays off the table of the Lord's Supper. This miserable food. This is Arch blasphemy. Speaking against God. Speaking against his appointed leader. Speaking against his gracious gifts. These people should be bitten by snakes and die. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. Now don't miss that. The Lord sent the snakes. This is wrath. This is anger. This is holy indignation from our holy God. The Lord sent the fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. What a man. And the Lord said to Moses, all right, make a fiery serpent, make one, make one. Don't use, don't use one of the dead ones or live ones, just make one and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, 
he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's the story. That's all there is. It's over. Now, let me make some observations about the Old Testament context of the story. Number one, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. It doesn't keep snakes from biting you. It deals with people who are poisoned and dying. They are bitten already. The poison is in them. They will die. The provision is being made for dying people, poisoned people. Number two, the snakes are in the camp because God sent them in the camp. The people are dying because God's killing them. He's angry. This is wrath. So what's being dealt with mainly is not poison, but anger. When the, when the snake is lifted up and you look to it and you get well, God's reversing his anger. The wrath is being removed and he's not killing them anymore. He's saving them. That's the second thing to observe. The third thing to observe is God is choosing to rescue his sinful people from his own curse with a picture of the curse. All right? I mean, he could have lifted up a sheep. Sheep. We kill sheep to be forgiven for our sins. We don't do snakes. We don't sacrifice snakes. They're unclean. They're wicked. They stand for evil. They're filthy. We hate snakes. And that's, that's the way he'll save you. He will take this, this killer, this wrath, this sin, this horrible thing, and he'll put it on a pole and you look at it. And, and that's number four. All they have to do is look at it. Okay? That's the Old Testament story. Now, you know, don't you, that Jesus read the Old Testament believing and then taught us to believe that there are pointers, types, foreshadowings of himself everywhere. This is just about Jesus. I mean, Jesus saw these kinds of things everywhere. Paul said, the rock in the wilderness was Christ. Strike the rock, get water, Jesus. <laughs> just, just, they see it everywhere. And so Jesus saw this. He read this story about himself, about the Son of Man. And as shocking as it is, you'd think, well, skip this one, Jesus, because you don't, you don't want to compare the Son of Man to a snake. Pick another one. Sheep, I'm not offended. Snake, I'm offended. As Moses, now let's go back to John. You can close numbers for the time being. John 3.14. As Moses, here's the comparison. As Moses did that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm going to make five brief observations, tell you a story, and we'll be done. First observation, Jesus is the Son of Man. I know you all assume that. It's not 
It's not obvious. He's talking in the third person here. He's not saying, I, I, I. He's talking about the Son of Man. So how do we know this is Jesus he's talking about? I'll just give you one illustration from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, verse 35, do you remember? He healed the blind man. And uh, the blind man got into big trouble, and he didn't know what had happened. And Jesus found him, and he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He asked the blind man that he healed. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man said, Uh... Sir, who is he that I may believe on him? And in John 9.37, Jesus says, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So that's clear, all right? We've got this now. The Son of Man in Jesus' mouth is Jesus. Whenever he says Son of Man, he's talking about himself. So that's the first observation. Observation number two. Jesus, in the place of the snake, is the source of the healing and the rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus is, Jesus is the rescue. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Pause. Moses lifted up the serpent says Moses did that. Moses made it. Moses lifted it up. Who's Moses in the New Testament, in the analogy? Now, I'm going to tell you who Moses is, but Jesus makes nothing of it. So I'm not going to make anything of it. But I'm going to tell you and pique your interest. <laughs> because I think there might be something to it. Passive voice. The Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent. So who lifted up Jesus? Don't answer out loud. You'll make a mistake. In John chapter... This, this word lifted up is used two or three more times. It always refers to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. In John eight twenty eight, 28, uh, Jesus said to a group of people, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. You. Who is it? Answer, the Pharisees. You see that in verse 13 of chapter 8. So you got Moses lifting up the serpent, and you got the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, lifting up the serpent. Moses lifted him up to save. I can't go any farther because Jesus didn't make anything of it. I'm just really tempted to, though. Okay, the reason for pointing it out is really this. Moses is not the Savior. The snake is the Savior. God is the Savior through the snake. God is the Savior through Jesus. There's the analogy. That Jesus really cares about. He doesn't, he's not dealing with Moses and the Pharisees here. He's dealing with the snake and Jesus. God, snake, no more death. God, Jesus, no more hell. That's, that's what he's doing. He's making that connection. Number three, observation number three. In the place of the snake, Jesus is portrayed as 
an evil and a curse. I don't think that's an accident. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. What happened on the cross to Jesus was that God made him snake-like. The snake in the garden embodied rebellion and sin. Jesus became evil for us. He made him to be sin. So that when he died, he died for that sin which was yours and mine, not his. And the snake was the embodiment of the curse. God had cursed these people. I'm killing them. I'm sending snakes among them. They are so blasphemously rebellious against me, bringing reproach upon my name because they're grumbling among the nations after all I've done for them. They're getting snakes. That's what they're getting. And they cry out for mercy. And it happens every time Moses intercedes with God. God mercifully relents, answers their prayer, and removes his wrath. And Jesus says, I'm being lifted up like that. Because Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He became sin for us. He became a curse for us. That's what the snake means. It's horrible to compare the Son of Man to a snake, and it's glorious to compare the Son of Man to a snake. That's our only hope. We're snake-like. We didn't just get bit by a snake. We're snake-like. We're not only tempted, we're tempters, just like in the garden. When God Almighty became a snake for us, this is what Holy Week is about. That's number three. Observation number four. What He gives through becoming sin for us and becoming curse for us as a snake is eternal life. See that in verse 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The poison of death is taken away. The horrible destiny of hell is taken away. And a whole future of joy with God is opened because Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up. Now, pause. Remember, this is all for Nicodemus. This is what you say to people who don't get the new birth. You talk about things outside themselves. This is all happening outside Nicodemus. This is history. This is the Son of Man coming in, dying while we were yet weak. He died for the ungodly. You hadn't even been born when He died for you. We need to hear that because I'm getting ahead of myself. 
that's the way the new birth is quickened, is awakened when you do number five. Here's fifth observation. All of this is saying to Nicodemus, who, who was totally confused about the new birth, he just it made no sense to him whatsoever. And most spiritual things don't make sense to people until they're born again. So what do you say to them? You say things like this, and what do you tell them that they need to do? And the answer is one word in verse 15 and another word in Numbers 21. In verse 15, the number is believe, so that whoever believes will have eternal life. I got a, a question in a Q&A on Thursday that went something like this. I have tried for two years to believe and I can't. Something like that. I read another testimony recently. It was Spurgeon, which I'm going to close with in a minute, where he said, for years, I just didn't know what believe meant. Word. It was just a word. Just believe, okay, but what does it mean? How do you do it? What does it involve? And so the answer that Jesus, I think, wants Nicodemus to hear is, Look. All they had to do was look at the snake. Look. Now, before I tell you this story of, of Charles Spurgeon's conversion, which might be the means of some of your conversions, let me tie it in to what I said has been the rudder or the compass or the pole star in our sailing the seas of the Gospel of John. Do you remember where? Do you remember what verse I kept coming back to as we've tried to make our way? Chapter 1, verse 14 and 16. Listen, connect it to what we're just seeing here because it's connected to everything. We beheld, 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 got that word? Beheld, saw, looked, see. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's verse 14, now 16. And from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's the new birth and many other things. So how does the new birth happen according to First Corinth, uh, John 1, 14 and 16? Behold, look, Andrew, come see. And now Jesus saying, Son of Man's going to be lifted up on a pole. Look at him. Just look at him. Now, the story, and I close with this. It's Charles Spurgeon. The year is 1850. The day is January 6th. It's cold. It doesn't snow like this very often in England. It was Sunday, snowing like crazy. He's almost 16 years old, and he's not converted. He's a very bright young man. He's read lots of theology. He's desperate to be saved, and he cannot make it happen. Here's what happened. In his own words, 
taken from page 87 of his autobiography. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there was perhaps a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At least a very, at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45:20, "Look to me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth." He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. You will never find comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus says, look to me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You've got no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. <laughs> However... It was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, <laughs> Young man, look to Jesus. Look! Look, look, you have nothing to do but look and live. 
I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. The simplest Primitive Methodist layman was the instrument in the hands of Almighty God to save the greatest preacher of the 19th century by selling him from Isaiah 45:20. Look, look. And God used that verse to cause the clouds to part. And he was born again. So what we do with our friends and ourselves is not try to do heart surgery on them and figure out what is this mystery of the new birth? How does this really happen inside? We don't go there. This is God's work. We direct them to as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes, that is, looks to him will have eternal life. Spurgeon quoted that hymn, and I want us to close with that hymn. And one of the reasons for singing at the ends of sermons, we're going to sing this on all the campuses, is that these, these hymns, like this one especially, are words that you, if you took them on your lips right now, would be a confession of faith. It would be a profession of faith. So if you're sitting there and God is at work in your life, causing to happen in you what happened in Spurgeon, then what a wonderful thing now to take a hymn like this on your lips and mean it for the first time in your life. So, on all three campuses. Would you stand here too? And we're going to sing. There is a fountain filled with blood. And you know who wrote this? No, you don't probably. William Cooper wrote it. Tried to kill himself three times. And God so ministers to us through this man's struggles. It's amazing. So let's 
Let's sing it and mean it.